Revelation chapter 1, verses 9 through 20 this morning. How many of you are currently going through trials? Some kind of stress, okay? How many of you have ever gone through trials or stress? Okay. The rest of you are liars. Today's text reminds us that this whole book was written to people who were under tremendous stress, facing trials, tribulation. Now, usually, when we're under great tribulation, great stress, our prayers sound something like this. Lord, make it stop. Right? What we want is removal from our stress. Or we'd, we'd settle for relief from our stress. But here's the thing. It seems to me what so often God gives instead is revelation in our stress. Right? Like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, right? Don't you think that they were probably thinking, Lord, get us out of this furnace. He didn't remove them from the fire. He revealed himself with them in the midst of it. Then the Bible says eventually they emerged unscathed, not even a whiff of smoke. If you came in today seeking removal from your trial or relief from your trial, I can't promise you that. But I can promise you that God wants to reveal himself to you in the midst of it. Just ask the Apostle John. That's exactly what Jesus did with him. Matter of fact, when you think about it, it's precisely how the book of Revelation even came about. Verse 9, John begins, and it's kind of like he's saying, look, here's how this whole book began. Verse 9, I, John, your brother and companion, that means joint participant in the what? Tribulation. It means trials, oppression, distress. I, John, both your brother and joint participant in distresses and, and oppression and tribulation. But notice it says, and kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ. I was on the island that is called Patmos for the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. Do you think it's safe to say that John, the writer of this book, was familiar with trials? A review in case you forgot, he's the only surviving apostle at this point. All of his fellow apostles have been sawn in two, stoned to death, thrown to lions, crucified, ripped to pieces by wild animals. History tells us that before this, under the, the persecution of Domitian, John was boiled alive in oil. He tried to kill him by boiling him in oil, but he didn't die. I guess that makes him a friar. That reminds me of a joke. What do you call a deep fried Santa Claus? Crispy Kringle. That was just for free. Um, now, raise your hand if you have previously up to now been thrown in a vat of boiling oil. No one. OK, so it's fair to say then that John has some street cred when it comes to tribulation. Today's three main sections, as I look through it, I see kind of three words that stand out. Tribulation. We're going to talk about that some. And God's answer to tribulation, which is revelation. Then somewhere about two thirds of the way through, we're going to just see Jesus complete domination. And, and I hope that it will bring courage to your heart, to your soul. First word here, tribulation. You see it there. I, John, both your brother and companion in the tribulation. The word means it's thalipsis and it means trials, affliction, distress. Literally, it means crushing pressure. You're like, oh, now I can relate. Crushing pressure. The word was used to describe, among other things, a form of Roman torture. They would have the suspect lie down. They put a board on top of him or her. And they would put this huge boulder on top of that board. So that any breath that you surrendered could never be retrieved because of the pressure. 
Perhaps that's how you feel this morning. Intense pressure. You're straining under the weight. You feel like you're suffocating. It seems like the enemy is just waiting for you to surrender your last breath. However, it's interesting that the same word thlipsis was also used for what they did on the threshing floor. That is, tremendous amounts of weight would help separate a wheat from the chaff. Perhaps that's why the Lord is allowing the thlipsis, the tribulation, the pressure in your life. To help you separate the wheat from the chaff. Now, one of the words in Revelation that is a huge hot button word, it's a dividing type word, is tribulation. Right? Are you pre-tribulation? Mid-tribulation? Post-tribulation? No tribulation? Pre-trib? Pre-wrath? Post-trib? Post-toasties? We'll get into all of that as we go along, okay? FYI, I happen to be in the pre-tribulation camp. But please, please don't misunderstand. To believe in a pre-tribulation rapture is not to say that Christians don't experience great tribulation. Think about it. The martyrs throughout history testify against that notion. John's martyred companions testify against that notion. And the words of Jesus testify against the idea that Christians won't suffer tribulation. John 16, Jesus said, in this world, you will have what? In this world, you will have tribulation. Raise your hand if you're on this planet, if you're part of this world. Not all of you did. Hmm. Jesus says, look, tribulation. Trials, pressure, sometimes crushing, suffocating pressure is part of living on this fallen planet. Whether you have a relationship with Jesus or not, that's true. Tribulation is part of being part of this fallen world. But if you're a Christian, Jesus doesn't stop there. What does he say to you to finish that sentence? In this world, you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer. Cheer up, because why? I have overcome the world. No matter what your eschatological. Let's all say that together. Eschatological. I just proud myself that I said it right. No matter what your eschatological position is. Listen, the message of this book is you have troubles. Guess what? That's normal. It's to be expected. But cheer up because I have conquered what troubles you. Matter of fact, I believe that's what it says here in verse 9 of our text. Notice three words. Three words jump out at me in verse 9. And they're all part of following Jesus. Look at it, verse 9. I, John, broke both your brother and companion in what? Number one, the tribulation. If you're one of those who, who uh, writes uh, notes for yourself in your Bible, I, I'm all for that. If you want to write beside the word tribulation, you could write the word trials. I, John, both your brother and companion in number one, the tribulation, but also the kingdom. If you want to write a word there, write triumph. And three, and the patience. And here's what I would write next to that word. Tenacity. I am your, your fellow compatriot, John says, and not only the tribulations that, are, that Jesus just guaranteed us in the world, but also the triumph that he guarantees us in the next world. And because of that, I have tenacity. That's when, when it says patience, that probably doesn't jump out at you like it should. It means enduring, great strength of enduring. It's hupomone. It means to remain under, under the weight, no matter how crushing it seems. Steadfast endurance. So I see three words there. The trials are part of the Christian life. The triumph is part of guaranteed in the next one. And that gives me tenacity to, to, to stand under the great weight. So said another way, John says, I'm both your brother and companion in the trials of Jesus and the triumph of Jesus and the tenacity of Jesus. Listen, all three are part of following him. The trials are guaranteed in this world, but triumph is guaranteed in the next in his kingdom. And that is what gives us the tenacity to patiently await his return. 
Listen, if you're a saint under the weight of a trial, don't be surprised. These are the same trials that Jesus promised you would come. But be energized by the triumph that he's promised. And use that to help you, hupomone, to patiently, tenaciously hold up under the pressure. I don't know if you... I think if you're an athlete, you get this. I speak from a distance. Um, I've actually run a a couple marathons. I know it's easy for you to see that. Um, Athletes understand this. You have a goal. It's in your mind's eye. You're going for it. And that's what helps you endure tremendous hardship and pain. It's to picture the victory before you that you know is coming. That's what helps you tenaciously endure. That's exactly what Jesus did, right? Hebrews 12, verse 1 and 2. Paul says, therefore, we also since, well, Paul, I think it's Paul. Therefore, since we also we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which easily ensnares us. He's talking about running a race and let us run with what endurance, hupomone, the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured hupomone, great stress. Endured the cross, despising the shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. That's a different message, but we are the joy that he set before him. The whole reason that he did it was because he had his mind, mind's eye on the goal. You know, that's a, a huge part of this book, and I think we miss it when we look at Revelation as only a scary book of prophecy. This book was written to those who were suffering to give them a vision of Christ with him waiting at the finish line, as it were, of a punishing marathon that is called life. We'll see it again today. God's answer to us in trial, even though we cry out for him to remove us or to give us relief, sometimes it's to reveal. Verse 9, I, John, your brother and companion in the tribulation and kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ, all three things, was on the island that is called Patmos, For the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. Patmos. It's a desolate island in the middle of the Aegean Sea. It it barely sustained life. It was thought to probably like the prisoners that would go there, they would have them work in the marble quarries. Y'all, it was used as an inescapable, unforgiving prison. Think Alcatraz. That gives you perspective on what he's saying here. Look, I'm writing you from Alcatraz, as it were. Now, how did he get there? Domitian tries to, to boil him. That doesn't work. He says, this guy is unkillable. I guess I'll send him to Patmos. If I send him there, he'll certainly have no influence. He'll die quietly there. You know the name Patmos? It's a cheery moniker. Name means my killing. Maybe that's you this morning. You're in a desolate, lonely place. And you feel like it's killing you. Maybe you even find yourself there because you shared the gospel. John could relate to that. Look, he says, verse 9, the reason I was there at Patmos was for the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. That's why I found myself here on this deserted, punishing island. Now, We know from history that Domitian, the enemy, wanted John put away in Patmos where he couldn't do any damage, right? But as you're in your trial, as you're on your own Patmos, does it occur to you that this is precisely in the midst of this desolate tribulation, this my killing that God revealed so much to John? Could it be that God wants to do the very same thing on your Patmos? He's allowing desolation, isolation, tribulation in your life so that you might be in a place to receive revelation. Could it be that this situation that you see as my killing is merely the backdrop, the place where God has you so that he can reveal himself? Again, not to relieve or to remove, but to reveal. 
seems to me that God's answer for tribulation so often is revelation. The problem is tribulation. God's answer is revelation. Verse 10. Here it begins. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day. Now, we don't know. That could mean I was worshiping on Sunday. Could be something as simple as that. Or it could be I was transported by the spirit to the great and terrible day of the Lord. It could be that. Verse 10. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day and I heard behind me a loud voice as of a trumpet. Saying, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last. What you see, write in a book and send it to the seven churches which are in Asia. To Ephesus, to Smyrna, to Pergamos, to Thyatira, to Sardis, to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. We're going to meet all seven of these churches beginning next week. But for now, I just want you to keep yourself right there in John's sandals. You haven't even seen him yet. You're just in your desolate place. All of a sudden, from behind you, this voice like a trumpet. Your your vision begins with a really loud voice behind you. The word there where it says um, loud voice, literally it's megaphone, megaphone, huge, loud voice. And it says it's as of a trumpet. Now, how many of you were in band in high school or in college? It was awesome. Okay, I'm confessing I'm a band nerd, okay? One of the things in our college marching band, on game days, before we would march down to the stadium, we would assemble outside the the music building, brick building, and we would play through our warm-ups. And we would play it facing the, the building. So it would be awesome all the, and I, was, I, I would play uh, saxophone. I've got trumpet players behind me. And there would just be, in the middle of these warm-ups, there would be this warm, rich, huge sound coming past me. But then it, we, would, we would finish a note, and it would hit the brick and come back a half second later. It was awesome. And the loudest of all, of course, was the trumpets. Y'all, John's choice of words here speaks volumes, literally, about the power and the clarity of this voice that he heard. What do they use in the military to convey action, urgency, orders? It's a trumpet, right? You hear a trumpet, it's commanding, it speaks of action and urgency. Whoever is speaking here, John had it turned around. Whoever is speaking here means business. This is not the muted trombone of Charlie Brown's teacher. Aren't you glad? Hi, John was on the island of Patmos. I hear. (laughs) Whoever speaking here means serious business. This is a clarion call with a huge, loud voice like a trumpet. Now, the voice again is behind John. I actually picture it like parting the hair on on, the back of his head. Verse 12, he does what I think you and I would do. You'd be a little scared, but you'd like, I got to see what that was. Verse 12, then I turned to see the voice that spoke with me. In other words, I turned to see who this voice belonged to. And having turned, I saw, first thing he sees, notice is not a person. I, I saw seven golden lampstands. I love the, the clarity that, he, you know, I think if he had, was making this up, he'd be like, and I turned and I saw. But no, he's like, well, no, the first thing I saw was the, the seven lampstands. Now, there's no guesswork, y'all, as to what the seven lampstands represent. You find it very clearly. Verse 20, Jesus actually points it out in verse 20. He says, look, those are the seven churches that I'm going to speak to in chapters two and three. OK, but he says in verse 13 and in the midst of those seven lampstands, in the midst of those seven churches, I saw one like the Son of Man. You know, this is Jesus. Son of Man is a messianic title. Daniel foresaw it and used that title in Daniel chapter 7 and 13 and other places. And Jesus claimed that title as his own. Matthew 26, 64. We talked about it last week. Remember, the high priest says, look, who are you? You better tell me who you are. Tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. Jesus says to him, Matthew 26, 64. It is as you said. Nevertheless, I say to you, hereafter you will see the Son of Man 
sitting at the right hand of the power and coming on the clouds of heaven. No question here. Jesus speaking of himself. So when it says, when John says, and in the midst of the seven lampstands, verse 13, I saw one like the son of man. Certainly this one is in the midst of these lampstands or churches. Don't forget is Jesus and his vision in his vision. He is verse 13. He is clothed with a garment down to the feet and girded about the chest with a golden band. We don't see it as easily as the Jewish reader would easily. They would see, oh, high priest. This is the Old Testament picture of the high priest. Only the high priest had a garment all the way down to his feet. Exodus 28. Also, it says the high priest had a sash on his chest. But interesting, in Exodus 28, it's like, we want you to, uh, I want you to make this sash with some golden threads in it. The indication here is this sash is complete, solid gold. Picture here is that Jesus is our great high priest. John hears this voice. He turns around, he sees seven lampstands, and in the midst he sees the great high priest. I don't know if you know about this, but one of the duties of the high priest was to attend to the lampstands to make sure that they were all working properly and well. What are the lampstands? Churches, right? Chapters two and three, what we're going to see, and I'm not spending much time because we're going to cover it next next uh, few weeks. It was the priest's job to attend to the lamps. The priest's job would say, look, this one needs more oil. This one needs a new wick. Man, this one got, has all sorts of gunk in it that needs cleaning out. That's what we're going to see in chapters 2 and 3. The high priest will attend to each church. But again, I don't want you to miss the beauty, the power that's here personally for John and for you if, you're, if you have ears to hear. Hebrews 4, verse 12 and following, talks about Jesus as our high priest. Hebrews 4, verse 14 says, Seeing then that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. Listen, for we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. He still has a robe down to his feet, pure white. We'll see that. Here's my point, guys. If you're suffering... If you're isolated, if you're under tremendous pressure, if you're on your island of Patmos, could it be that your high priest is right behind you? Could it be that he's speaking to you even today? Maybe he's even speaking with the voice of a trumpet, but you have your headphones on, listening to the soundtrack of the world. His call is clarion, and what he says as a high priest is, bring everything to me. Lay it down at his altar. Jesus could be saying to you this morning, I want to minister to you as your high priest. Let me take your burdens from you. That's what Hebrews 4, how it ends in the following verses. It says, for we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are yet without sin. Let us therefore what come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Get the picture of some of us on our own Patmos. Just thinking, okay, well, what I'm supposed to do is just hoop a money. I'll, I'll stay under the stress and. Okay, so I'm doing this for Jesus. I'm doing this for Jesus. When the whole time he's behind you saying, bring your stress to me. I'm your great high priest. Back to this revelation. John sees Jesus in the garb of the high priest in the midst of the lampstands, the churches. Actually, let's just take a quick side note there. When somebody tells you, look, I don't need to be in church to worship Jesus. That's true. If you're on a deserted island. But in America, where there's no persecution, there's a church in every town. If someone tells you, I don't need to be in church to worship Jesus. That's a person who's never seen the high priest where in the midst of the lampstands. 
They don't get it that Jesus loves the church. And he loves it when we get together. And he's right here in our midst. He's promised. Wherever you gather, there I'll be right in your midst. See, John sees in the midst of the seven lampstands, our high priest, verse 14, and here it really begins to start to blow our minds. Look at verse 14. His head and and hair were white like wool, as white as snow. Now, you guys know, white is the, the, white hair, of course, is the symbol of wisdom and age, right? We have maybe a few examples here. And and actually, you know, it's it's a small point, but... It's another point. If, if you need wisdom, ask your high priest. He's got billions of years of experience. He's your high priest. He can share with you. But really the idea here is that from the neck up, John sees this vision and it's just pure brilliance. The word white there is leucos. It means light. It means bright, brilliant. Um, we said last week, If the Mount of Transfiguration is a snapshot of Jesus' divinity, this is a full-length feature film, right? Matthew 28, verse 3 says that his countenance was like lightning and his clothing as white as snow. So both places we see brightness, whiteness, as white as snow. He's talking about purity, magnificence that you can't take in. He says as white as snow. Quick question. Is there anything that's harder to look at than a new snow... Under a brilliant sun. That's the idea here. That's how John describes Jesus, just from the shoulders up. By the way, that's how Jesus looks right now. If you were to to try to look him in the face, under these circumstances, this is exactly what you see. You couldn't look at him. Verse 14, his head and hair were white like wool, as white as snow. Oh boy. And his eyes like a flame of fire. Now, we're going to see lots of places here where where John uses the word like, and it gives us a clue. He's not saying necessarily literally, but symbolically, right? Jesus' hair was not actually wool, was not actually snow, and his eyes aren't literally torches. The word eyes here is ophthalmos, And metaphorically, metaphorically, it means the eyes of the mind, the faculty of knowing. Jesus has the faculty of knowing that's fire. What's fire represent? Judgment. You know, here's the point. Jesus sees everything. He judges everything. He sees our actions even and knows our motives. And another thing. What do we say when somebody is passionate about something? He's got fire in his eyes. Y'all, Jesus is passionate about righteousness. He's a warrior with fire in his eyes. Revelation 2.18 says, And to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, These things say the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire and his feet like fine brass. And he's going to go on to pronounce judgment on those who commit adultery with Jezebel. Revelation 19:11 Now I saw heaven opened and behold a white horse and he who sat on him was called faithful and true and in in righteousness he judges and makes war and his eyes were like a flame of fire. All right, this is what we know already from this very brief account that John shared with us. I turn around and he's pure. He's brilliant to look at. He sees everything and he's Passionate about righteousness. Verse 15. And his feet were like fine brass. Uh, the word actually is uh, fine alloy chemical or chemical of some kind. Um, if you look, there's a, a parallel verse in the Old Testament in Daniel that says not brass, but bronze. And I think that's probably more accurate. His feet were like fine Brass or bronze, as if refined in a furnace. I wonder. John looks toward his. He sees his chest first, then he tries to look up. He's like, "Man, that's bright!" And his feet, his his eyes go go to his feet. I wonder if he looked down just to give his eyes a break. And what does he see? He sees feet that 
shine, dazzle with reflected glory, burnished bronze. Y'all, feet represent authority, right? The Lord says to my Lord, let me bring your enemies and put them under your feet. All things are under his feet. Feet represent authority. And here it talks about feet of bronze. Apparently, bronze is a, a super strong alloy that's been through the fire. His feet literally have been through the fire, right? Jesus's have. And the idea is that they're not going anywhere. He's conquered. Burnished bronze is at once beautiful and yet unyielding, right? Strong enough for amazing weapons and yet still beautiful. Also, just this morning, as I was in my quiet time, I was reading through Exodus 38. And it talks about when you're preparing the tabernacle, everything that has to do with burnt offerings needs to be bronze. Very interesting. Why? I, would, I would presume because it's, it's already been through the fire. It's unyielding. So here's what, what that speaks to me, to the Christian. Look, it speaks of his atonement. What, the, the burnt offering was, was a sacrifice. It was an exchange. It speaks of his atonement. He has been through the fire for us and he's not budging. And it says, and his voice as the sound of many waters. How many of you have been to Niagara Falls? I have not. But I heard it's really loud. Is that, is that right? Okay. I have been to the ocean. Ocean's pretty loud. Probably nothing like that. But the idea is many waters. I, what I've heard is that at Niagara Falls, you can scream practically. And a person next to you has trouble hearing you well. Again, I've been to the beach. I know that the, the tide coming in just by itself is amazing in volume. It's soothing. And yet when you like get back in your car, you're like, wow, I didn't realize how loud that was. It's soothing, yet it's awesome. Just I find it, you know, and I think we're going to find this as we go through. John has a really hard time. How do you describe someone's voice anyway? Right. But especially the son of God, he's like, I don't know how to describe the timber and the quality of the voice of Jesus. The best I can say is that it was like a waterfall. It was like an ocean coming at me. Daniel 10, verse six. When, when he was speaking, he said his body was like barrel, his face like the appearance of lightning, his eyes like torches of fire, something familiar, his arms and feet like burnished bronze in color and the sound of his words like the voice of a multitude. Philip and I have shared a few times. We have, if you have video of, of our group um, having fellowship, everybody just talking, talking, talking. You can't make sense of any of it, but it sounds like the voice of a multitude. and It begins to sound like running water. If that makes any sense. Uh, it's hard to describe. All we know is it's awesome and chances are overwhelming. Look at verse 16. And he had in his right hand seven stars. OK, this one's easily solved. You know, we go through and we're like, boy, I think this means this and this means this. But this one, there's no question. Look down again at verse 20. Matter of fact, actually, look at verse 19. We're going to uh, tackle 19 and 20 real quick because they're, they're uh, verse 19 is more part of next week. Verse 19, it says, write the things which you have seen and the things which are and the things which will take place after this. That's the outline for the rest of the book. And we'll talk about that next time. The things which you're seeing right now are chapter one. The things um, which uh, which are are chapters two and three when he speaks to the churches and chapter four and beyond are the things which will take place after this. Okay. now look at verse 20 and you see the mystery of the stars solved. The mystery of the seven stars, Jesus says, which you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels or messengers of the seven churches. And then, of course, we already saw the seven lampstands, which you saw are what? The seven churches. Aren't you thankful that, that Jesus says, OK, now I'm not sure that they'll get this without this. So I'm just going to lay it out. Says, Look, the seven lampstands, the seven churches in what we call Turkey now. The seven stars are the messengers. Now, it says angel. The, the, the word is angelos, and it can mean messenger, uh, a divine kind of messenger or just a human. Um, most commentators believe that the, the messengers here to the churches that he's speaking to are pastors, human pastors. If that's true. I'm so comforted. I, I really am. 
Because it says Jesus holds the stars in his right hand. You guys, you saw me last week freaking out. Lord, I think I'm blowing this. I don't know how to, how to organize my thoughts and, and express them, Lord. I, I, Lord, I hope I'm not messing this up. And here, Jesus goes, I got you right here. I got you right here in my right hand. Now, if you want, I can let you in on this blessing. And you don't even have to be a pastor. Just be a messenger. If you'll be a messenger for him, he'll hold you in his right hand. Now, back to verse 16. We've seen John's tribulation, right? We've begun to see Jesus' revelation. And now, verse 16 through 18 is pretty much just his complete domination. Jesus' domination. Verse 16. He had in his right hand seven stars, and out of his mouth went a sharp, two-edged sword. Now, probably most of you, when you see that, your your mind might go to Hebrews 4.12. For the word of God is living, powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division and soul of the spirit and the joints and and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. That's a a great scripture, but it's a different word. The the word in Hebrews 4.12 is uh, machaira, and it it refers to the small sword, that which you would use for hand-to-hand combat. Okay? This word, Revelation 1.16... Is a broad sword. You know? That kind. It's like four feet long. The way you store it is to put it on your back. This is an awesome sword. There's nothing about hand to hand combat here. When it comes out, y'all, it inflicts enormous damage. And and the, the pictures that are in Revelation. Talk about this sword being wielded in global terms. Matter of fact, you'll you'll see it here. You'll see it twice in chapter 2 when Jesus is speaking of himself wielding the sword. Interesting, you see it in Revelation chapter 6 when uh, it says, So I looked and behold a pale horse and the name of him who sat on it was Death and Hades followed with him and power was given to them over a fourth of the earth to kill with the broad sword, with hunger, with death. And by the beasts of the earth. There's no question here. This is a sword that wields tremendous damage. It was given permission for a while for Hades and death to wield this sword. And it speaks of tremendous damage. And of course, the the last two times we see it in the book, Revelation 19. Guess who's holding it? Jesus. Tremendous power. Now, what in the world is this, though? Verse 16, out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword. A huge crushing sword comes out of his mouth. Isn't that just weird? What was the point? Listen, he speaks and his enemies are vanquished. Death and Hades have to have permission to even hold the sword. Jesus speaks and his enemies are conquered. They are obliterated. They are crushed. No hand-to-hand combat is ever needed. Jesus says a word and his enemies are crushed. Now, if you have previously up to now seen Jesus as a really nice guy who did some really great things and got a raw deal on the cross, you need this revelation. Verse 16, he had in his right hand seven stars out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword and his countenance was like the sun shining in its strength. Not the sun shining in an eclipse or at sunrise. No, in its full strength, where if you look at it, you go blind. Jesus' overwhelming glory. What have we seen so far? His overwhelming glory, his righteous passion, his devastating power. He's been through the fire and he's not going anywhere. He's got feet of bronze. No wonder, John says, verse 17, and when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. That's precisely what happened to Daniel. Daniel 10, verse 16. He says, my Lord, because of the vision, 
My sorrows have overwhelmed me and I have retained no strength. Listen, that's what happens when you see Jesus in his full glory. That is exactly what you would do. That is exactly what you will do. There are people, maybe you've heard them, maybe, you've, maybe you're one of them, who said, when I see Jesus, I have a few questions I'm going to ask him. Really? And, and listen, don't speak of him as the man upstairs. The big guy. He's the one with the commanding voice of a trumpet. His voice roars like many waters. The high priest, with, with a face that's brighter than a snowy winter's day, he has eyes that see through. His eyes are ablaze with a passion for righteousness. His feet are strong and beautiful. They've been through the fire. He's not going anywhere. And when he speaks a word, global damage. A broadsword drops upon humanity. Is that the big guy who casually lives upstairs from you? We should be afraid. We should be in awe. We should fall at his feet. We should admit, as John does, there's no life in us. We are dead before him. But look, verse 17. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. But... He laid his right hand on me. Isn't that just like Jesus? He could have said something, but the first thing he does is he touches him. And he says to me, what? Do not be afraid. Christian, do you hear your mighty warrior king? Do you hear your great high priest? Do you hear your really scary defender? What is it? C.S. Lewis, right? The lion, witch in the wardrobe. Is he, is he safe? No. But he's good. Jesus could have said to John, Okay, you stay down there and worship me. Because I earned it. Or he could have said, well, now that you get it, now that you understand how great I am, now stand up and we'll talk. No, Jesus, the Alpha and Omega, the first and the last, he reached out his hand and touched John. And the first words out of his mouth to John personally, do not be afraid. Y'all make no mistake. He is really scary. But everything changes. With a touch. With four words. Do not be afraid. Probably this is the easiest way to really make it crystallized for you. Jesus says to John, Yeah, I'm really scary. But I'm on your side. <laughs> I can live with that. Wouldn't you rather have Jesus for you than against you? Christian, no matter what tribulation you find yourself in, no matter what patmos you find yourself on, I know you want removal, you want relief. What you need, apparently, is revelation of who Jesus is. And especially, Christian, that He's on your side. Do not be afraid, Jesus says. Why? Well, because of verse 17. I am the first and the last. All of your troubles, all your problems. Does it? I, let me put it this way. Jesus says, I'm, I'm in charge of the, everything from the first to the last. Where are your troubles? Are they somewhere in there? Okay. Then I have it covered. I've got it under control. Are you scared of death? Jesus says, verse 18, I am he who lives and was dead. And behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. What's he saying there? Yeah, that whole death thing, I pretty much conquered that too. 1 Corinthians 15, 
Death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your sting? Oh, Hades, where is your victory? The sting of death is sin and the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through who? Our Lord Jesus Christ. He goes on. Paul does. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. Therefore, be hupomone. Steadfast and movable, always abounding in his work, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. And he is the conqueror of all things, even your worst enemy, sin and death. Verse 18, he says, I am he who lives and was dead. And behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. Oh, one more thing. I have the keys of Hades and of death. I have authority there too. If you're here this morning and you're an unbeliever. This is the same Jesus that you've dismissed all of your life up until now. He has the keys of Hades and death. He alone determines who is locked up. He's not looking for how good a person you are or you think you are. He's not looking at how much you gave to charity. It's very clear, all of us, even a righteous person like John, we can't even stand before him. We can't even look at him. We all stand in his righteous eyes, the flame of fire, condemned. We all stand subject to the broad sword of his word. But here's the deal. I'm saying that there are some in this room to whom he's saying this morning, do not be afraid. I've got you. Do not be afraid. I'm your high priest. Remember when I exchanged your filthy rags for my righteous robes? First and last. Everything in between I've got under control. That is what the Lord is saying to his beloved, his saints. But there may be some in this very same room who when you see him, he'll say, depart from me. I never knew you. Now, how can you be in the first group and not the second? Very simple. Bow before this mighty king. Make him your high priest. He wants to be your high priest, not your judge. Surrender. Repent. Repent means to turn direction in your life. From from how you're going to just following him. And he'll show you. You don't have to worry about a year from now. You have to worry about today. Lord, I'm repenting. I'm turning and to follow you today. If you do, he's promised, no matter how awful you've been, he's promised to receive you. He's promised to apply his righteousness, his perfect, shining, brilliant righteousness to your account. And to exchange his brilliant, super righteous robe With your filthy rags. He's promised to rescue you from the wrath to come. Have your eyes been open this morning? I hope so. I feel like mine have. We need to be having our eyes open to him and who he is. All during this book of what? Revelation. Revealing. Let's pray. Lord, we love you. Thank you for your... Thank you, Lord, that you would humble yourself, you and all of your splendor, and become a man, a servant of all, die a brutal death because you love me, because you love us. Lord, in this valley of decision, will you help those who are hearing you and the enemy is... is, uh, Trying to get them to resist. Lord, in this time, will you encourage your saints to realize as awesome as you are that you reach out your hand and you touch us and you tell us not to be afraid precisely because of who you are. Help us, Lord, to, to honor you in, in all that we do in the, the remaining part of this service, but the remaining part of our lives. Lord, Lord changes. Having seen you in your vision.
In Jesus' name. Amen. Um, have a few applications, but I'm going to maybe wait until... Did you get them? Okay. I'm going to maybe wait until um, after this, this next thing. I just feel like whenever, whenever I read this scripture, I'm like, woe is me, I am undone. So what I want to do today is a little different. Just thinking, if you would, over the next few minutes, read through this account. Just you and him. Read through it in silence. And ask him to reveal himself to you. Maybe in the midst of your own Patmos, in the midst of your tribulation. Or maybe, again, maybe you're one who's ignored him all of your life. Read through this. Because you're going to have an account with Jesus very similar to this. Read through it and respond. If you already know him, read through it by praising him. Lord, I can't believe that you're on my side. And Lord, I will not be afraid. I'll refuse to be afraid because you're on my side. If you don't know him, I want you to be very afraid. I want you to be terrified. So that that you'll surrender to him and you'll find him your great high priest. So, let's let like the next three minutes just be silence. You and him. And after that, a time of prayer together and, and praise. Reading through the scriptures, you're welcome to come up here and kneel before this great and mighty high priest. If you want to be alone with God and you want to kneel before him, you're welcome to come over here. If, if the Lord is speaking to you and you want prayer with someone, whether it's a, about a heartache of your own or a trial of your own, if you need prayer of any kind with someone, will you come to this side? And especially if the Lord is calling you to himself. If he's saying, I want you to have this meeting with me now and not when you die. Not when I come in the clouds of glory. I want you to have this meeting with me now. If he's saying that to you, will you come? Spend a couple of minutes in silence. But come and be prayed for, prayed with. All right? So, it might seem weird to you. We do this on Wednesdays occasionally. Just silence. You can do it for a couple minutes. And then as we start playing, feel free to pray for one another, uh, to move about, all of that kind of stuff.